Welcome to 633 service. If you're new here tonight uh, and it feels really casual, that's because that's what we do. And if it feels like we kind of know each other, it's because we do. And if you're here enough, we will know you too. So that's my little invitation to you. Uh, before I get started tonight, there are so many good things to talk about that it's kind of amazing. Uh, opportunities to do great things. Uh, I went down to, uh, there's a ministry that's supported by the United Methodist Church called Skyline Urban Ministries. And they have a, a couple of facilities, or uh, three actually in Oklahoma City. Uh, there is one that is at 8th Street, just east of Classen. Uh, they do all kinds of things. They have an eye clinic there. They have a, a food pantry, which is kind of unique in terms of food pantries because instead of the organization bagging it up for people, uh, people can actually kind of go in and kind of shop and pick out things. And there are all kinds of opportunities for families and individuals to go and serve at 8th Street. And uh, they would just love to have you come down and help. And it's, it's really the kind of thing, it, you know, if you can give them a call, that's great. But if you found a few minutes or an hour or two hours that you could go down and serve during the day, and if, especially if you work downtown, you can just go over there and serve. And uh, for little kids, they have things like, uh, you know, scooping out beans and rice and putting them into bags that kids can do and all kinds of things. So uh, I would just encourage you to go down and do that. There's some other things. Exodus House. Uh, is a ministry for people who are getting out of prison, who just need that, that place to go to to kind of re, uh, kind of acclimate to the climate of the world outside. And we support this ministry, Exodus House, and we actually have adopted at New Covenant um, some apartments. And what that means is, is we go in and if the apartment needs to be renovated, we renovate that apartment, and then we supply that apartment with everything like couches and chairs and kitchen supplies and all of that kind of stuff. And we have a new apartment that just opened up that needs a lot of work. So if you're a handy man or a woman type person and you like to get in there and learn how to do some of that stuff or do uh, hands-on stuff to clean that up, this is a great opportunity for you to go and serve. Uh, Kathy Sewell, uh, Laura Belden, if you would hold your hand up real quick. If you're interested in that ministry, um, talk to her. And the cool thing is, is this ministry is not just something where we come in and fix up their apartment. We don't have this interaction. It's developing a relationship with the people who are in the apartment. And, and when they go through the program, when they're finished, they get to take the furniture and stuff with them. And so it's us kind of helping them get started in this new life. At the 8th Street Church that I mentioned, every Saturday night, they have a worship service uh, that's mostly of like homeless and people who are in need. Um, and then a meal afterwards. If you ever wanted to crash that, it's a good thing. You go down there and you experience church that way, and it's, uh, it's just good. So uh, I think that is all of my announcements. Uh, we are looking at the words of Jesus, and uh, as I told you uh, last week, I have gone through and I'm in the middle of organizing it so I can share it with you because right now it's in a Jimmy format. Uh, it's jimmied, um, which you might not be able to understand, but I've gone through and using some software and stuff and copied and pasted every word of Jesus in the Gospels. Um, and I know that there are other places to find that, but I wanted to organize it my own way. So I, I've done that. Um, and let me tell you something. I don't know how to convey this in a talk for like 20 or 30 minutes every week. Uh, these words are troubling. Like every time I come to the words of Jesus and I have to look at them seriously, uh, they mess me up. And so one of the things that, like Jeff said, that we talked about last week is that when Jesus shows up, he says to repent, to change change the way you're living, to change the way you're thinking about reality. And it really takes that, I think, to follow Jesus. So uh, a, one quick thing, and then we're going to jump into the words of Jesus, okay? Um, if 
as we go through this and as I start to be able to provide you some things to look at, one interesting thing about studying the Gospels, uh, I don't know if you've ever studied the Gospels before, but each Gospel writer has their own perspective on things. And so when I make this document available to you, what you're going to see is that Mark says it different than Matthew, and Matthew says it different than Luke, and John is way out there, okay? And it's kind of neat because I have them in these columns, and you can see how often they're all saying the same thing or not. And sometimes they say the same thing just differently. Um, and it's kind of neat to see that because what I believe is that God revealed this, you know, inspired the, the authors of the Scriptures, words for them and words for us. And I think sometimes when we just kind of mush it all together, we lose that individual voice of those authors that God meant for us to hear. Um, he meant for us to hear how Mark's take was on things. Um, otherwise, I don't think it would be, you know, it wouldn't be a part of the process. And so, um, as we go through these words of Jesus, there's going to be some times that probably what we'll do up here on the on the wall is I will show you. Here's how Matthew says it, and here's how Mark, you know, he didn't even say it, and here's how Luke says it, and John again is way out there somewhere in the middle. So, and when I say he's way out there, John really is different than those other three. He does a lot of different stuff. So, um, in some format, as we go through this in the next few weeks, I'm going to just kind of go through and use the Gospel of Matthew as the base outline um, as we go through things. But sometimes we're going to jump around and deal with topics. And I thought about tonight dealing with the very first words of Jesus in the Gospels, like his baptism moment and his temptation moment. But I thought it might be better to start the whole series to come back to that thing about what is the central message of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus shows up on the scene. He's been tempted. He's been baptized and been tempted out in the wilderness. And then he goes back to Galilee, his home country, and he, he's 30 years old. I would love to know what he did for all those years that he wasn't, I don't, I don't know if I want to say it this way, but wasn't doing anything. But I mean, he was doing something. I wonder what he was doing. So he's in his 30s, and he shows up, and this is the message that Jesus proclaims um, in the gospel. This is the first thing that he says that is a, a, you know, I hate to use the word sermon because that gives us an implication that he's doing something like I'm doing. I don't think he was doing that. I think he was doing like uh, what Alex Buckner does when he goes over to Buffalo Wild Wings, and he's talking to uh, waiters and waitresses about life and talking about God, right? Jesus is hanging out with people, and he's declaring this right here. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near um, or is at hand. It's close enough to touch. And that word, uh, the Greek word for is fulfilled is in a perfect tense. Uh, is Justin Raglan? Justin Raglan, perfect tense. What is perfect tense in Greek? What does it do? Brilliant man. This is Justin Raglan, everybody. He's a Greek expert right there. Yeah. And a drum expert, percussion expert. Um, yeah, it's a perfect tense. Greek has all these um, tenses and moods, and so just for the sake of saying it, a perfect tense. Uh, and it's, what that means is, is it, it's an event that occurred in the past that has present reality or implication or is ongoing now. Okay? So when you say it is written, what you're saying is that it was written in the past, but that stuff is still alive now. Okay? And that's the way that Jesus refers to the kingdom. The time is fulfilled happened in the past, and this moment is still going, this divine time, and the kingdom of God is near enough to touch. Repent and believe in the good news, and that word repent, as we said, is just 
to change, to turn around, to change the way, combination of two words that if you look at both of them would be like to change the way you, you see or imagine things, okay? Change the way you see reality. So in the Gospel of Mark, that is the first message of Jesus. And all through this red thing that we're going to talk about, these words of Jesus, this idea of God being the king is the thing that Jesus calls the good news. Okay? Now, we talk about going and preaching the gospel or preaching the good news, and a lot of times we center that on the message of the cross, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that's certainly a part, an important part, an essential part of the good news. You need to know this, that in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out his disciples to preach the good news. And he's not dead yet. You understand? They're preaching the good news of the arrival of God's kingdom. Something new has happened. And it's been going on from the time that Jesus has been here from before that. And really, it's probably been here before the time of Jesus. They talk about it in the Old Testament, but it's been growing and changing. It's becoming more full. And the kingdom of God is present and close enough to touch right now for those who are willing to repent and be a part of it. Okay? So in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew, it basically reads just like this. His first message about what Jesus is about. Now, turn over to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue. And in Luke, this is Jesus' first recorded message. And he says it differently than Mark does. He kind of lines it out a little bit more clearly. Like, what is this kingdom thing? And this is what Luke says in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He's in the synagogue. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens it up. And, and we've talked about this in here before. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He's christened me. He has appointed me. He has you know, marked me to be the one to bring good news to the poor. To bring good news to the impoverished. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives or the prisoners, and the recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And as they're looking at him, Jesus says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus shows up and says, he says it this way, basically. The kingdom of God is here like this because I've been anointed to do all of these things. The poor have good news preached to them. You want to know where the kingdom is? Wherever the poor are hearing good things that are, that's good news to them, the kingdom is there. Right? When somebody doesn't have any food and somebody gives them food, do you think that's good news? The kingdom is there. Is it there in its fullness? I don't know, but it's there. Right? He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives or the prisoners. Exodus happened. The ministry to say to people, you are free. And we want to be a part of the process to make you free. Because that's the kingdom of God. He's about setting people free. And it wouldn't be good enough for us just to say, God likes for people to be free. That just feels good. We want to be a part of the process because we want to participate in the will of God and the kingdom of God. The recovery of sight to the blind, to the healing of physical ailment that's not seen. To let the oppressed go free, those who have been uh, pushed down by the system, basically. Who don't have a chance because the system doesn't give them a chance. They've been oppressed. The weight of something else has been put upon them. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we talked about it here several months ago. The year of the Lord's favor is the Jubilee year when all debts are canceled. I've got to tell you something. 
Now, this is not a plea for help, but I'm just going to tell you, I have an idea. We talk, we, let's just put it on the line. How much are we really willing to participate in this kingdom? How much are we willing to risk and to give for this kingdom? Jesus says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is the year for canceling debt. What if churches in this debt-laden society that we have, what if we started, and it wasn't just a matter of teaching Dave Ramsey, but what if we started by acts of grace helping people to get out of debt? You think that would free people up to serve Jesus? The person who can't give because they've got to pay the debt bill? What would that be like? Because I'm telling you, right here in Edmond, there are people who are bound up and captive for stuff like that. Some of us just need to repent quit buying so much stuff that we can't afford, right? Right? Maybe when I say some of us, say like 99% of us. But you know what? Here's the thing. Maybe people make stupid decisions, and this might be crazy, but it seems like the God that we believe in doesn't hold people's stupid decisions against them. Praise the Lord. Right? So Luke says it a little bit differently. And he goes on in that chapter. They're all impressed with him after saying that because they kind of felt like they were those people, right? If we were all some group that's on that list, the poor or somebody, and I came and said, I'm here to tell you good news. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that is fantastic. But Jesus always kind of puts mm, steps a little further than what people want. He says in verse 23, he says, doubtless you will quote this proverb to me. Healer, heal yourself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that you, we heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. So if you're going to be like Jesus, you just need to know that if you got a word, it's okay if you get rejected by the people you're closest to. Just so you know. I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown, but the truth is there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land. Three years and three and a half years of no rain. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha in the next generation. But none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And what you may not know is Naaman the Syrian, being a Syrian commander of a Syrian army, he was the commander of an enemy army. And so there are all these lepers in Israel, and God sends Elisha to Naaman, the enemy. And so Jesus doesn't say repent in the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but he definitely starts to reframe things. Everybody's on his side. It, this good news to the poor, we're so glad the kingdom of God is finally going to show up, these Romans and all these Jews. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. In Elijah's day, uh, this good news went to the, the foreigner. In Elisha's day, this good news went to the enemy. And so if you're going to participate in this new kingdom that's going on, that's different than the world's kingdom, we actually do good things for our foreigners and our enemies. You have to change the way you see things. And then they wanted to stone him and kill him. It wasn't so good. Sometimes the good news is bad news. Right? If I came to you and said, the good news is you can be free of your stuff. Oh, I'm sorry. I wish I could be so free of my stuff. You just have to give it away. Oh, man, that's not good news at all. What I meant was I want to have my stuff, but we're free. 
Right? It's different. In the Gospel of John, the kingdom shows up in a different way, a different conversation. Turn to John chapter 3. I've said that John is different. <clears throat> he is. In John chapter 3, Jesus has done two great things uh, in the previous chapter in John chapter 2. Number one, he has turned like 360 gallons of water into wine for a party where people were already drunk. Um, interpret that how you will. Follow Jesus how you will. I'm just going to say. Just let me say, though, if you're going to provide the wine, make sure it's a miracle. That's all I'm saying. Um, anyway, the next thing he does is he goes to the temple, the center of Jewish religious practice, the center of where you meet God, and he confronts the people who are the people who are supposed to know how to meet God, who are selling all kinds of stuff to make money in the name of God. And Jesus comes in, and I would love to reenact this in some real way someday. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I go into Mardell and I have this feeling. Should I turn over that wine? When I was a teacher, I used to come in and I used to, this would be one of the, we did the thing on the Gospel of John, and, and a lot of them hadn't read John, so I would come in that day, and I would start out on this passage, and I would put my desk over, like I had this really big tool desk like they would have, and I'd just kick it over and go on this, and throw chairs, and they just were freaking out. But it says that Jesus makes a whip. He's angry. He's leaving a whip. And it says, he it says that he drove everybody out of the temple. He turned over all their stuff. He let all their animals loose. It's chaos. And then it says in one of the Gospels that he wouldn't let anybody enter the temple. Imagine me being out in the parking lot or you being out in the parking lot Sunday morning. People are showing up. Come on. Right? I'm just here to work. No, you're not. Oh, my gosh. What was Jesus like? This meek and mild man. I mean, he wasn't surely thinking, hey, guys, it might be not going to the temple. i got a whip. <laughs> so he acts these people off, and in the very next chapter, we find out the guys that ran the temple were these guys named Sadducees. In the very next chapter, we find a guy in the other party, the Pharisee Nicodemus shows up to have a conversation with Jesus. And he says, he kind of props Jesus up, oh, you're a great teacher. God wouldn't be able to do things in you unless you were a great man. You know, you never heard anybody say anything like that, how you like twist up like that. <clears throat> Listen to this. Uh, verse chapter two, chapter three, verse two. He came to him, Nicodemus came to him by night, sneaking in. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And he's right. Right? He's twisting up, but he's right. Jesus just kind of blows him out of the water. Jesus answered him, Truly, amen, amen, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Remember that idea of seeing things differently? You can't see it unless you've been born from above. And in the Greek, there's this little play on words because this born from above can also be understood as born again. And Nicodemus misses it. Like they must be having this conversation in Greek. Because Jesus, there's a theme in the Gospel of John about being born from above. So we kind of know that's what Jesus probably said. That's what he was talking about. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born from above. And Nicodemus is like, what? How do you be born again? Can you go back into your mom's womb a second time? I don't know how that works. Jesus says this in verse 5. <clears throat> he says, truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God 
but he was seeing it. You have to be born from above, and no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the Spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In my mind, it's almost like Nicodemus wants to control Jesus for his own political purposes. You know, you know, you should kind of play that game. And Jesus is like, I'll tell you about a kingdom that you can't even see unless you're born from above. Come on. I'll tell you, you can't even enter this kingdom unless you're born physically of water and born of the Spirit. You've got to be born... You know, in a different way. And so it's okay to use that phrase, born again, right? Nicodemus wasn't so far off. <laughs> I mean, how do you, some guy that wants to be controlled, and here's his answer. You know, it's like the wind, man. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. That's the way it is with the Spirit. You want to put, I, mean, I, I really feel like he's saying, you want to put me under your finger? Just try putting the wind under your finger. But here's a cool thing for us, because the reason that we are studying these words is because the words of Jesus are life, and the life of Jesus is a model for us. And so he's telling us, see things differently. See different. Be born from above. Be born of the Spirit. That's like a mystical thing. I don't know how to explain that. It's kind of weird. Let the Spirit come in and control you, and then all of a sudden, you don't know where things are coming from or where they're going. You're just... Or maybe you do and other people don't. I don't know. It realigns everything. And there's this phrase that Jesus uses in the Gospel of Matthew several times in the Sermon on the Mount. Where he says, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. And I think that this thing, what I'm finding as I go through these words of Jesus, is there's a lot of things the world has said. There's a lot of things the church has said. There's a lot of things I have said. And when I'm confronted with the words of Jesus, I just can't get around it. You had heard that it was said to pay people back. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if someone steals your coat, give them even more. Give them a shirt off your back. And I have these conversations with friends because I really am wrecked by this. I've been wrecked by this for a long time. I really have. Um, some of my friends, that they know. I'm, I, what does he mean? And I may not know what the answer is. He means what he says. But we want to find all kinds of reasons to say to Jesus, well, what you really meant, Jesus, was this, right? And he comes back with, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? And for me, that comes back to repent. Because the way the world system works, and it's in rebellion against God, and it creeps in and it consumes, and it's a part of our very nature. And it's constant enmity with God what the scripture says. Constant struggle with God. And if we're not aware of that, we will too easily give in to it. And as these weeks come, I, I, would, I don't know, I don't want to put anything on you like, you know, here's what I expect of you, but part of my thoughts as I'm going through this is, why would God say this? If this thing just broke us. And when I say this thing, I don't know what I mean. Wouldn't it be great if because it's already here and it's already present, but what if it just broke out even more, this kingdom of God, this reality where people are saying, we're, gonna, we're not going to live the way that we've been taught by the world and by things that are contrary 
for the kingdom of God, we're going to live by the words of Jesus, which are, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. It is they which testify about me. And I came to fulfill those things. He's not against it. So Jesus makes himself the center of the scriptures. He tells the Pharisees, you study the scripture all day long, and it's they that testify about me. So here's the thing, whatever, and I don't want to use other parts of the scripture to explain away the words of Jesus, but we do that, right? Love your enemies, what Jesus said. He goes, well, but God killed people in the Old Testament. It doesn't work that way. It should work the other way. Hey, you know what? God did command the Israelites to kill people in the Old Testament, but you know what Jesus said? Because he is the center of the scripture. And I believe all of Scripture is inspired, but we start with the red word first. Right? All right, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. This is my invitation to you to come back or not <clears throat> right here. Okay? How many of you, I think Jeff Bull was there. When I, when I was a youth pastor here way back in the day when we were all younger and my hair was longer, um, I was a hippie, um, or buzzcut, one of the other. We do these confirmation retreats. And in a confirmation retreat, what you're supposed to do is help kids have gone through a process, kind of like the end of the retreat, and you're supposed to be like, now's the moment that you make a decision for Jesus, and I want all of you to make that decision for Jesus because it's the best thing in your life. Um, I'm kind of a contrarian person, and so I don't know if any of you who used to go on those, if any of you ever went. Uh, I just decided I was never going to do that. And so on Saturday night, the night of the big decision, what I would say to our confirmation kids is, listen, I'm here to talk you out of it. Because it will wreck your life, and if you're not prepared for that, maybe you're too young for this. Like, love Jesus, but if you're not ready to make this commitment, it's okay, because somebody should be telling you that this is a, the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life. It's kind of the anti-altar call. Please, don't come up, because you don't know what this means. And of course, it was, you know, psychological, they all came up, because they wanted to be. But, <clears throat> Luke chapter, uh, let's go with 14 first. Sorry, I know I told you 17. Luke 14, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with him. Jesus' outreach campaign was working. And he turned and said to them, I'm so glad you're here. This is what I've been after. What I need in my movement is a large crowd of people to make it happen. And now we're going to start divvying things up because we really can't accomplish very much if we only have 12 guys. So, right, is that what he said? No, it's not what he said. Whoever comes to me, I just can't imagine this. Whoever comes, we talked about this last week, whoever comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself. This is like some, this is like 10 years ago, the people who wore black all the time, you know? That's what it reminds me of. If you don't hate life, you can't be a part of it. But Jesus says, whoever comes to me and he doesn't hate his family, doesn't even hate life itself, cannot be my disciple or my apprentice. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And when you talk about carrying a cross in those days, they knew what that meant. You're an enemy of the state, you're going to get executed. If you're not willing to do that, you can't be my disciple. Sorry. What do you think happened to his numbers that day? In the Gospel of John, he says it this way, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my disciples. And it says, Many quit following him that day. Right? That's what it says in the Gospel of John. It's, 
I'm out. No flesh and blood for me. I'm out. And then he says this to them. He just wants them to count the cost. For which of you, if you intended to build a tower, if you're going to build something, does not sit down first to estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. His tower is halfway done. He ran out of money. He didn't think ahead. Funny. Would it be funny? Would you be the person? This is, would you be the person to make fun of the person who didn't? That's not the message for us. I'll let you know. And what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? So he's saying, what king who knows the odds are against him doesn't sit down at first to go, hmm, I think I can win with 10 versus 1. And maybe he can. So Jesus probably knew what they were thinking. The odds are against me here. If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace and issues of English. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Switch gears on them. You want to be my disciple? You've got to hate everything. You've got to take up your cross. You've got to hate your own life. Count the cost, man, before you make a decision. If you want to be my disciple, you've got to give up all your possessions. And this isn't just the rich young ruler. This is the large crowd. So you in this thing? Are we still together on this? That's not what he really meant. Turn to Luke chapter 17, verse 33. When I was a youth pastor, I love youth pastor stories tonight. We used to do these mission trips to Mexico, and I'd get parents that would call and say, is this trip going to be safe? And at first I used to say, like, oh, yeah, it's going to be safe. And then I just realized, no, it's not. I, I can't guarantee that. So I used to say, no, I don't know. I can get hit with another kid's car in the parking lot before we ever leave. I have no idea. Jesus says in Luke 17, 33, those who try to make their life secure, and the Greek word could be safe, those who try to make their life safe will lose it, or they'll ruin it, they'll destroy it. You want to destroy your life? Try to be safe. And secure. Put a big nest egg away. Don't ruin your life. But those who lose or ruin their lives will keep it. And the word for keep is like save it or rescue it or sustain the life of it. Here's what I'm going to tell you. These words of Jesus, and I've thought about this coming in here the next few weeks, by the way, and not commenting on it at all. Just coming in and reading the words of Jesus are just out. Because then there's no excuse to say, well, you know, you'd have to just wrestle with it yourself like I do and then put me to this today. And there probably will be a week or two where we just, I'm just going to hit it. He's, he, he's telling us, and I know I've said this for three weeks now, repent. The kingdom of God is here. And in Luke chapter 12, he says, your father, oh, little flock, he says, little baby sheep. Your father longs to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have life. He wants us, he longs for us to experience the kingdom. To give up ourselves and to give up our safety. And I get it. I got three kids at home. I understand the need for security and safety. I get it. 
It's not as easy as when you're a college student. All, all of you who are older know that. Right? But Jesus doesn't care. He didn't care about my excuses. You know why? Because he cares about me. And he wants me to experience this life. But he's come here to offer us now and forever. And as I said here before, I can't do it alone. This is the coolest thing about this. We need to find ways to be able to say to each other, sometimes we need to repent. We need to think differently about how you're doing stuff. How you're spending your time, what you're doing with your family. Have you, you know, have you thought about your career? Is it really the thing that God wants you to do? Wouldn't that be real? You don't know how long for that? Or we can just come to church and sing good songs and hear very talented people. And we could go home. So there's Skyline Church, there's Orvis Reisner, there's people sitting right next to you, and there's India, and there's all these ways to get involved, but it will take decisions. It makes Christianity more than an event, but just a life that we live today. Um, and that's my that's that's what Jesus is challenging me to. And so you get the fortunate or unfortunate benefit or whatever that is of hearing me say to you, that's what Jesus is challenging.